mentioned already, but I, I know that, at least some of you know, that Grace and I have built a new flower bed in our backyard this, this spring. Uh, I know Grace has posted pictures of, of our work on Facebook, and some of you have commented, so even as I mention it, some of you may have a visual image coming into your mind's eye of, of what I'm talking about. For our yard, this flower bed is fairly large. It's about 25 feet wide and probably averages about 10 foot depth, although the, the front is curved, so it varies. We started working on this because we wanted this flower bed, but before we began, that section of our yard was grass. That means we had to dig up the sod and till up the dirt. I, I built a couple garden boxes that my wife wanted for vegetables and and then we put flowers into the bed and we put vegetables into those boxes and we added some solar lights we we built oh first of all bought I didn't want to build it from scratch but we bought and assembled an arch that's probably a better way of saying it so we could have a vine that would grow we put edging around we put mulch in we we did put lots of flowers in as well Um, we put in a some garden art this piece of garden copper garden art all in all, we, we did a lot of work to, to make this bed a reality this spring. Why did we do so much work? Why did we do this? Well, partly I did it so that my wife would be happy. There, there is that component. But that was not the only reason that I put effort into the bed. The primary reason that we both wanted this flower bed is because we knew that it would bring beauty into our yard we endured the, the sore muscles that come from doing things that you normally don't do. We, we endured the, the, the time of sweat that, that comes from working instead of lounging on our deck. We did all of this so that we would be able to see the beauty of the flowers that we were convinced would be result from this bed being in our yard. We, we were confident that we will be able to look out our window from our family room or the kitchen. We will be able to sit on our patio deck and, and enjoy this flower bed. We worked hard in anticipation of future joy. Now, I'm sure that you all have similar stories in, in your own lives. Times where you've worked hard in anticipation of something that is in the future. Uh, an expectation of future joy. As we'll see this morning, genuine love is like that. Genuine love fits that category. Genuine love is something that requires hard work in anticipation of future joy. We are continuing our series on developing genuine love this morning. As I've been reminding us every week when we begin this series, this is important because love is the distinguishing work that God says should be in the lives of Christians. It's the distinguishing mark. We should be known by our love for others. Love is something that, that sets us apart from the unsaved world around us. For that reason, getting love right is vital. We, we cannot just do anything that we want and call it love. As in all of life, we must allow God to reveal to us what the real thing is and what is not real. We must love one another with a real love. We must love the way God says that we are to love. Of course, it shouldn't surprise us if this is the distinguishing mark of a Christian, it shouldn't surprise us that that God has left us revelation about what love is. 
If it's the distinguishing mark of Christians, we should expect God is going to inform us what love should look like. As we have been observing for several weeks, Paul gives us a list of characteristics in Romans chapter 12. These are the things that God considers genuine love. With this list, Paul is is both identifying the characteristics of genuine love and encouraging us in developing the real thing. The the goal that that we've set for ourselves, if you're just joining us this morning, the, the goal that we've set for ourselves in this series is that we will examine our lives, we will evaluate our love against the characteristics that we see in this chapter, and strive to ensure that our love is genuine. Turn with me, if you would, to Paul's list in Romans chapter 12. Paul's list begins in verse 9. So far, we've looked at the first characteristics that are contained in in verses 9 through 11. Paul writes, Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. This morning, we're moving into verse 12. In this verse, Paul begins to to move away from the characteristics that that define genuine love to describing the environment that will produce such love. Think back to that that flower bed that that Grace and I built. I I mentioned that we put some garden boxes into that flower bed for veggies. We could not put anything we want into those garden boxes and expect veggies to grow. I couldn't take those clumps of sod that we dug out at the very beginning and just pile them into the garden box and say, well, that works. I couldn't just throw bags of mulch in there and expect vegetables to grow. We, we had to put good black dirt in those boxes if we expected vegetables to grow. So we did that. We got some good black dirt. We even bought some organic fertilizer. In other words, we bought some manure Composted manure, but manure nonetheless. And for an old farm boy like me to spend money on that just killed me. But we did. We bought some organic fertilizer to add to the dirt, and then we even bought some, some, some bags of fine garden soil to add as a topmost layer so that we'd have a good environment for our vegetables to grow. That's sort of what Paul is doing as we move into to verse 12 here. Paul has given us some characteristics that that help us identify love, but now he's going to give us three items in this verse that are closely related to one another, things that are natural partners that that all work together to create the the proper mindset in us, The, the mindset that will serve as fertile soil, if you will, for genuine love to grow. Like we've done thus far in this series to get to this point, we're going to take these items one at a time over the next three sermons. This morning, we'll examine the first one, rejoicing in love, or rejoicing in hope, rather, rejoicing in hope. We're going to do our best to unpack these three words this morning, rejoicing in hope. Let's begin by considering that these words, first of all, demonstrate that love requires a joyful spirit. A joyful spirit. That's where we're going to start this morning. In the original language, the word order is actually reversed. In the original, Paul says, in hope, rejoicing. But 
that doesn't flow very well in our English language, in hope rejoicing. So all of the English versions that I checked, they, they flip it around so that now we have rejoicing in hope instead of in hope rejoicing. The, the, the word that Paul uses for rejoicing, it, it's a common word. The, the general meaning of the word is simply to be glad. To be glad. That's how the word's used throughout the New Testament. To be glad. Sometimes the word's actually used as a greeting, this word. But even that falls along the same line as when you greet someone, you're, you're greeting them in a sense of you hope they will be glad. That you have a desire. You're expressing that desire that they will be glad. After all that, that's really, if you think about it, similar to, to when we say good morning. We, we come in and we say good morning. We're, we're actually not commenting on the state of the morning as it's observed. Now, this morning it might be okay. We had a nice sunny day out there and say good morning. It could be, yep, it is a good morning out there. But you know, even if it's cloudy and gloomy and rainy and overall yucky, we still greet one another by saying good morning, right? We do that because that expresses a wish that we have that their morning Regardless of the weather or anything else, their morning will turn out to be one that the person would consider good. That's similar with this word that Paul uses. It's a word that's often used, greet someone with a wish that their day will be one in which they are glad, filled with joy, that this will be a day of rejoicing. The, the trait of, of rejoicing is a very common New Testament concept. Many times, this applies to believers as a descriptor of what is proper for us. We are to be joy-filled people. Philippians 4.4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. 1 Thessalonians 5.16, rejoice always. On Sunday evenings, we've been in the book of Revelation. Well, Revelation 19.7, let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him. The marriage of the Lamb has come. Looking at the future time when the Lord returns, the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready after he takes us away in the rapture. And the word shows up over and over. The, the gener, general tenor that we get from the New Testament is that Christians should be delighted people. We should be filled with joy. That should be our natural resonance. When people see us, they should see people who are joy-filled. What we need to recognize this morning is that Paul is tying this trait of joy to our distinguishing characteristic of love. He's connecting these two things together. There, there's a connection between love, genuine Christian love, and a joy-filled spirit. Now, before we try to tease out this connection and how it might come about, why it's there, let's make sure that we're on the same page where I'm using the words joy-filled spirit. At this point, I'm not talking about our expressions of joy. I'm talking about our inner attitude. Our expressions of joy may vary. One of the speakers this week at the School of Church Planting Conference made this point that, that not everyone expresses joy in the same way. The, the speaker 
is a man who works with a lot of churches in revitalization. When churches have dwindled down and they look to be on the path of dying, he comes in and he tries to help them revitalize so that they can accomplish being lighthouses for the gospel in their community. And because that works with a lot of different kinds of churches, but before that he worked as a pastor for many years, he worked with a church in Wisconsin. And he mentioned in his workshop that I sat in that, that he's observed there's a great difference in some of the Spanish-speaking churches that he works with. They are composed largely of, of Latino immigrants. There's a great difference between them and the church he pastored, which was primarily composed of Scandinavians in Wisconsin. I'm married to a Scandinavian, so I, I, this resonated with me, this example. Actually, it resonates because of my background as well. But, but he said, you know, when, when Latinos are joy-filled, you easily see it. It's evident if you're in the room. If you're not in the room, you probably hear it from the room next door. In fact, you may hear it from the block away. There is no doubt when Latinos are filled with joy. He said, by contrast, he's been with his, his Scandinavian church members when their kids have made a vital goal in soccer. Or even more significantly, he's been with his Scandinavian members when they personally shot a deer at long range. He said, those were times where they were filled with great joy, and they acknowledged that joy by a little head nod. We need to recognize that that we don't all express joy the same way. But we all need to have the same inner attitude. We need to have this attitude of joyful spirit. But By the way, I would also suggest that if we are really going to be known as joyful people, our neighbors should not have to work hard to translate our expressions of joy. As I said, I'm personally, I'm married to a Scandinavian, but I am also much more close to a Scandinavian myself in how I express joy naturally than I am to a Latino. Uh, I grew up in a German community, and Germans are also rather reserved people. But I don't live in a German community. I cannot expect my non-German neighbors who who come from all sorts of, of cultural backgrounds to be able to spot the tiny signs of joy that the people in my hometown might have spotted. If I want to show joy in my life, I have to do it in a way that's visible to the the average observer, not to a person who has a master's level degree in joy translation. We need to be men and women that can show our joy. I truly believe that the burden to express my joy in an understandable way is on me. It's not on the people watching me, it's on me. Because I am the one who wants to joyfully magnify my Savior. I am the one who wants them to know this distinguishing mark of a believer. So I need to work to make sure that I express my joy in ways that the people around me can comprehend. So, we need to have a joyful spirit. But why? Well, sometimes it helps to think about the opposite. What is the opposite of a joyful spirit? 
The words that might come to our mind is things like grumbling or complaining, gloom and doom. Well, from Philippians 2.14, we know that we are not to have a grumbling spirit. In the context there, a grumbling spirit produces divisions within the body of Christ. Divisions certainly do not show love. Rather, love heals divisions. Love produces unity. At the most practical level, we will never show concern and care for others, which, as we've seen in other weeks, is part of love. We will never show that concern for others if we lack joy. We will not be devoted to one another or give preference to one another, as verse 10 says, without love. We will, not lack, we will lack fervency. We will lag behind in diligence. We will fall far short of love because a lack of joy results in a focus on self, not others. Self-focus kills love. It doesn't generate it, it kills it. We need joyful spirit so that we produce love. Love requires a joyful spirit. As we unpack this little phrase that Paul gave us, rejoicing in hope, that's the first observation we can make. Love requires a joyful spirit. The second thing that we can observe from these three words is by focusing on the other main word, love requires a hope-filled attitude. A hope-filled attitude. As I said Earlier, Paul actually puts the hope section first. In hope, rejoicing. That's the literal way he lays it out. He does that because his emphasis is on hope. Hope is what generates our love. Like the the word he used for rejoicing, it's it's a common word that he uses for hope. It's a common New Testament concept, yet it's different from the way we tend to use hope in English. At least sometimes the... The hope that we use is anything but a a confident expectation of something in the future. Yet the New Testament word always expresses a confident, constant expectation in a future reality. Sometimes we, we use the English word to communicate something that is going to happen, but we're not, or it might not. We we may not know. Sometimes we might even use it to express something that we doubt to happen. Like, I might say, I hope the Lions will make it to the Super Bowl this year. And you all laugh because all of us know that hope is expressing something we have very little confidence in occurring. The New Testament word is not like that. The New Testament word does not carry uncertainty at all. It it conveys a steady confidence in, in something that is still to come. The reason that we have this difference between the way the New Testament works and the way we use the word is because the use lies in a different basis. When I use the word hope in daily usage, I'm usually referring to to things that, that must be accomplished either by myself or by others, other people. In some cases, I may have a high degree of confidence that that something will happen, but but I never know for sure. 
there, there's always a chance that, that something will come up that, that might derail my expectations and, and prevent whatever it is that I'm hoping for to come about. For example, I might say, I hope to return tonight for the 6 p.m. service. At this point, that's less than seven hours away. I know that I have nothing else on my calendar. In fact, my calendar is such that that is the only thing I ever allow to be put at 6 p.m. on a Sunday. It's my responsibility to be here at 6 p.m. I refuse to schedule anything else in that time slot. So as much as it lies within my control, I am confident that I will be here at 6 p.m. But I also recognize I do not have absolute control over this plan. I could have an accident as I leave today, and by 6 p.m. tonight, I might be in the hospital. On the way back, at just before 6, my, my car might break down somewhere, and it might take more time than I have between that event and 6 for someone to come pick me up and bring me here, so I might arrive late. The Lord might return between now and 6 p.m., in which case I will be worshiping in his presence, and I will not miss that service one bit. My hope in coming to the service tonight is not communicating 100% certainty. That is not how we are to think of the hope expressed in the New Testament. When the New Testament uses the word hope, as it does here, it is expressing a confident expectation in something that is absolutely certain. It's certain because when the New Testament uses this word, it's pointing to the promises of God. There's an inevitable result before us. We will be with Jesus. We will be glorified. We will be made whole without any stain of sin whatsoever because our hope is based on the finished work of Christ. Paul's already explained all this to us in, in his letter. He's explained in Romans 5, verse 2, that what he's talking about is the hope of the glory of God. I, I trust you have your Bibles open. Flip back to Romans 5. Follow along as I read the first 11 verses there. Remember, this comes earlier. We're in chapter 12. So Paul now is just using shorthand in language when he talks about hope. He expects us to understand all that he's already explained. Romans 5, verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, through our faith in Jesus Christ, we are declared righteous by God, and for that reason, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exalt in hope of the glory of God. Paul here is defining the New Testament for us. He's showing us that, that the hope, as he's using that word, is a hope that is tied to the glory of God. It's the hope of the glory of God. Not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. And perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. Hope is this product that comes about as we see God's plan unfolding in our lives, even the tribulations and the hardships. It builds this hope, and that's a reason to exult. And then verse 5, and hope does not disappoint. Did you catch that? Hope does not disappoint because why why does hope not disappoint because the love of god has been poured out within our hearts through the holy spirit who was given for us 
For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we will be saved from the wrath of God through him. For while, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult. There's that word again, that, that word that we saw in verse 2. In verse 2, we exult in the hope or in hope of the glory of God, and here we exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. What Paul is telling us is that, that the basis for our hope is already complete. It's the, the finished cross work of Christ. It's what provides our reconciliation with God. Hope is just a, a, a name for the future enjoyment of that reconciliation that we already have it, Receive through faith. My point is that Paul has made all this clear. That hope, the way he's using it, is unshakable. It is as certain as anything can get. It's as certain as our salvation. Christ died for us when we were ungodly. He died in our place. He took the penalty our sins deserved. He went to the cross on our behalf. And he rose again, showing that His sacrifice was sufficient. Death could not hold him. And Paul has made it clear that the moment we place our faith in Christ, when we believe that he died for us personally, we are declared righteous. Hope is just living that out. Coming to to enjoy that reality for all of eternity. You know, if you're here this morning and you don't fully understand that, come see me. Let me share with you what I'm talking about when I say Christ died for our sins because it's your sins he died for as well as mine. Let me show you how you can receive the reconciliation that Paul's talking about. Talk to me after the service. Send me an email at the address there. Let me share the glorious hope of the gospel with you the certain, confident hope that will never fail. Because it's complete, because God has already poured out his love through the Spirit on us when we were justified by faith, we have a certain hope. Paul is just using shorthand now in Romans 12 when he says, in hope, rejoicing. As one Lutheran commentator stated it nearly a century ago, he says, Hope is the sure expectation in our hearts which rests solely on Jesus' promises. I trust you understand what hope is now. Hope re- love requires this hope-filled attitude. So I hope you understand what hope is. But let's again ask, how does hope tie into love? How do they connect? Remember in that passage I just read in Romans 5, 5, Paul wrote that hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts. We need to understand that any genuine love that that we show to others is really just the overflow of the love we've received from God. As we receive God's love 
ourselves. It flows through us and from us to others. As God's love fills up, it overflows, and, and others receive the benefit of that genuine love. A genuine love is always a reflection of God's love. It's, it's an overflow of the abundance of God's love. Any fixation that we have on our sure hope becomes then a large element to this filling and overflowing process. The hymn writer that we sang in the hymn right before this sermon got it right. He said, My hope is in the Lord who gave himself for me and paid the price of all my sin at Calvary. How is your hope this morning? Really what I'm asking is, how is your fixation on the promises of God this morning? Are you focused on the, the circumstances of the world around you? Or are you focused on the circumstances of your spiritual life that has been given to you? This world is a mess. Our Savior is risen. Your life is filled with pain. Your Savior has borne your wrath. Your retirement savings might be evaporating. Your eternal home is secure. What are you focused on? Focusing on the hope of, that God has given us is necessary, it, but it's a mental activity. It's not something that happens to us mystically or, or any other way. It's a mental activity. Focusing on the hope that God puts before us, his promises, is a mental effort. We have to review the truths of Scripture and allow those truths to fill our minds. This is another reason that, that Pastor Aaron and I keep encouraging all of you to, to get involved with, with the discipleship program that we have here in this church. At the core, what this discipleship program is, is just a structured means by which you can have your thoughts focused on the realities of Scripture. All you do is meet with another person and spend time reviewing the, glorier, the glorious, hope-generating truths of Scripture. The more you focus on the hope, this certain hope, that God has given you, the, the more you will find that love is filling you and flowing from you. I can assure you that's true for me. I, I meet nearly every Tuesday with one of the, the men in our church at a coffee shop to, to work through the discipleship material. The, the first lesson in that discipleship material is on salvation. Now, the man I'm meeting with and myself, we have both been saved for many years. And that lesson on salvation, it reviews the most primary thing that we need to know about our salvation. It is as basic, as basic as Christian doctrine can become. You cannot be a Christian without knowing these basic core truths. I think the two of us spent four weeks going through that lesson. Four weeks. It was exciting to rehearse with each other what God has done for us. It's been years in our past since we made the decision, but it's exciting to think this is what God has done. It is fun to review what our Savior did. It's fun to remember again that 
we do not need to add anything to what our Savior has done. It's exciting to, to contemplate the fact that I cannot add anything to it. It is perfect already. It's joyous to, to spend time realizing that all we can do is praise God for what he has done. As we spent those four weeks going through that first simple lesson, God's love swelled in both of our hearts. It swelled as we spent time reviewing core, basic gospel truths. Love requires a hope-filled attitude. That's the second thing that, that we can understand as we unpack our three words here today. Rejoicing in hope. Love requires a hope-filled attitude, and hope-filled attitude focuses on the promises of God. Rejoicing in hope. Unpacking those words has shown us that, that love requires a joy-filled spirit and a hope-filled attitude. So think back to those garden boxes that I built in, in our flower bed. We had to prepare those boxes so that we'd have a reasonable expectation that vegetables would grow. That anticipation is what brought joy into our present as we were working on those boxes. That's much the way I think about the ideas that we've been unpacking this morning. We need a joy-filled spirit. We need a, 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 a hope-filled attitude. Why? Because genuine love requires a hope-filled joy to flourish. It's that simple. Genuine love requires a hope-filled joy to flourish. Do you have hope-filled joy? What does your joy meter read this morning? Is it full? When, when you check your joy, is, is the content, when you look in the, the joy tank, is the contents of your joy tank a hope-filled joy based on the promises of God? The, the reason I'm looking so much forward to our flower bed is that I'm anticipating how brilliant and vibrant that the flowers will look when we see them against the, the green grass that surrounds them, the, the green leaves that make up their plants, the, the black mulch that we put in compared to the dark shades, the, the, the yellows and the reds and the, the purples and the whites. They'll just shine. It will give us beauty because of the background it's placed against. Friends, we have a world that's coming apart around us. Rage and anger are consuming people everywhere you look. Division and hatred is all over the place. Confusion and despair abound. That kind of a world provides a brilliant backdrop against which lives of hope-filled joy shine forth like neon lights in a dark room. Christians rejoicing in hope are far more brilliant against the sin-filled hopelessness of our world than any flower I could possibly plant. We need to have lives that are hope-filled joy. We, we cannot show hope-filled lives by, by remaining stoic. Our, our joy must display itself. We cannot show hope-filled lives by bemoaning the, the changes occurring around us. Our hope must show. Yet, yet the only way that our hope-filled joy will show is when we engage with the people that God has placed around us. 
as I've said throughout this series, the first people that should experience this hope-filled joy are the people in this room. Your hope-filled joy should benefit the people that God has placed into church with you. But they should not be the only ones. Your hope-filled joy should also touch the lives of every person that you connect with throughout this week. Your neighbors, your co-workers, your family members that need to know that there is confident hope. There is a different kind of hope than they've ever experienced when they've used that word. There is a hope that's based on the finished work of the cross. Their lives should be touched by genuine love because you and I are loved by Christ. We have hope-filled joy. Genuine love requires a hope-filled joy to flourish. Let's pray. Father, we cannot do anything but pause with awe in our hearts that you would love us enough to die for us. That your Son, the holy, righteous Son of God, gave his life on our behalf. Father, but the more we think about that, the more our hearts swell with joy. And the more we read and understand what you've revealed, the more our lives are filled with confident hope because nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing. It is certain. So, Father, I pray today that you would cause us to be men and women that are filled with the hope-filled joy that Christ alone offers. Father, in a group this size, there's undoubtedly someone here today that does not know Jesus as Savior, that has never personally experienced the hope-filled joy that I'm talking about. Now, I pray today that you would draw that person to yourself, that you would work in their hearts, convict them of what they are missing, and draw them to a saving knowledge of Christ. Father, I pray that part of what you would use to accomplish that is the joy-filled lives that surround them this morning as they sit here. Father, I pray that if we are not living out our lives as believers that are filled with hope-filled joy, that we would change as we walk out the doors this morning. That we would recenter ourselves on the wonderful, glorious truths of your word, the possessions that we have in our salvation. And that we would shine forth in the world around us with our joy in Christ, that we would indeed joyfully magnify our Savior. For it's in his name we pray, the source of our hope, the source of our joy. Amen.